If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is presented by Mountain Tough and Yeti. I partnered with Mountain Tough because a lot of the tactics and hunt styles I talk about in this podcast require you to be in the best physical shape you can. Their app is designed for hunters to get you ready for the backcountry or any hunt you have planned this fall. Yeti's been a longtime supporter of mine and they make some of the toughest products out there that are built to last and they're built for the wild. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. You know, it's that time of year, a lot of draws are starting to come out, hunts are being planned. And for many of you listening, you're probably going to find yourself in some form of grizz country. The bear population is definitely expanding right now and interactions with bears are becoming a lot more common, especially with the increased activity in bear country. It's really a topic of discussion that gets asked a lot and is worth devoting a little bit of time to, whether you've lived your whole life in bear country or just venturing out for your first trip. There are things that you should know and think about when it comes to planning a trip in bear country. So this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. I was actually recently going through some older footage that I had on a hard drive of mine and came across this really cool interview that I got to do a few years back with a guy that fought off a Kodiak brown bear with a knife. So back in 2015, I was hunting with my good buddy, Jeremy Rusink of Rogue Expeditions, and we were actually in this area outside of Anchorage, Alaska. And then after the hunt, we, we came back into town and we're just uh, catching up with some guys, sharing hunting stories. And then somebody had brought up this story of a pretty incredible bear encounter that he'd heard of a guy getting mauled and then killing the bear with a knife. And I when he told that story, I remember seeing kind of a similar story or what I thought was maybe the same story in outdoor life, you know, I, I don't know, quite a few years earlier, they used to have this what happened to me section and kind of the comic strip part of the story. I remembered seeing something about a story like this. So um, we started doing a little bit of research and was able to track down this guy named Gene Moe and hear the story firsthand. I was able to see the knife, the scars, and actually the bear as well. The story he told was probably one of the most incredible stories I'd had the privilege to hear. And I'm really thankful I got to uh, sit down with him and hear that story. So let's go back to June 2015, sit down with Gene Moe as he tells the story of a knife fight with a brown bear. Okay, this is the 1st of uh, November in 99. And uh, we're on Raspberry Island next to Fognac. And of course, the big island is Kodiak Island. And we've been hunting each year for, I don't know, probably 30 years of hunting deer. And of course, the deer were planted there and just before 1930. Otherwise, there was no deer or goats on Kodiak Island. So it's the first one. I've got a hunter with me that's been now three years. 
And the first year, he hadn't seen no deer, so I took him out and called a nice buck for him, and he did a nice job of shooting it. And then this year here, he hadn't seen any, so I had him with me, and I, he didn't want to be call a deer, so I said, well, well, hunt, if you stay right behind me, I'll show you one. Well, he wandered away a couple of times, and that's when I seen a deer, and so I put him on a, go on a canyon up above, and I'd try to chase up to him with deer. And we eat lunch up where the snow was about two feet, and we came back down, and when I come there, then he'd put his ear lappers down, and I says, you'll probably hear a deer before you'd see. Oh, he says, I can hear pretty good. Well, that really got me kind of disappointed because I'd worked so hard to try to chase him one, so it got afternoon, about 2 o'clock, and I thought I better shoot a deer. So I dropped the deer, and we had a deal. He'll come to me, or if he shoots, I come to him. Well, he didn't keep, and we had an old thing we always used in Minnesota when we were kids. We could call like an owl, and the deer wouldn't run, so I did that. I knew he was only about 100 yards, 150 yards from me, but he didn't show, so... I went to butcher it myself, and uh, there we take the hide off, and we take all the meat off, and I always carry a plastic piece of visqueen there and put the meat on it, and then I debone it, and I got this all done in about 40 minutes, and the only thing I had left to do was to get the liver and heart, because when we come in the evening, we always fry up the liver or heart and we'll talk what each one had seen that day or was a little bit of get-together before supper. And so uh, I had it all done. I had the liver in one hand and the heart in the other hand. I always had the gun within uh, probably two foot from me when I'm butchering out. Uh, this because of this year, we were close to the woods. We'd gone into the big woods this year because they had a bad spring fall that year where the snow got too heavy and we'd lost a lot of deer. So most of the deer were staying next to the big woods. That's just nature. And so I got it all done. I came back and all at once I heard a roar. I mean, oh! And this bear came around the corner. Usually they'll stop once. It never stopped. I seen I couldn't get to my gun, but I had my buck knife in my hand. And so my ID, if he don't stop, I'm going to put that hand down its mouth that's wide open, and he's coming full trade. And so when he come on top of me, I put the right hand, and I missed the knife, and it went alongside of my head, and he grabbed me right above the elbow. Probably you could see this thing here on my elbow, it grabbed here and pulled the meat down to my wrist. And I, uh, then he was on top of me. I got my arm, my left arm around him and I tried to choke down on him and he just twisted and I went flying. And he went backed away from me a little bit and stared at me. And when you look at a bear, a bear's eyes are like a pig's eyes is something you don't really like to even look at. 
and he stared at me and then come this time against me and he tried to land on top of me. Well, I had a leather boots on, big leather boots, and I hit him right below the neck with both legs. I had him folded and I hit him. I knocked the bear off sideways and he rolled over once and I was up before the bear was. So this time he, he walked away from me and then he turned around and growled a little bit and I says, you know, I'm going to have to do something a lot different. I took my leg and I waved it out, my leg out, and he seen that he came towards the egg. That was his one mistake, I think, because he grabbed me right above the knee, but that gave me an iron. My knife was frozen yet with my hand, and, of course, the skin was hanging over my wrist. And I slammed that bear into his neck and I put the left arm around him and I hit him up close to the jawbone. I just buried the knife in that jawbone and he come again and I gave him one with my left fist right on the jaw there and I thought it broke my wrist, that one. But he went away and he was really pumping blood. I may have got him in the juggler vein, but the blood was just coming out of him. And in his two bottom teeth, there's my meat hanging there. He had taken probably five, ten pounds of meat off my leg all the way to the bone. And I was hanging there, and his fight was out of him. And I tell you, the fight was out of me really too. But you don't walk away from one and I remember yelling at that bear, come on, I says, the Lord's on my side. And he looked at me and looked at me, and it seemed like probably a minute or two, but it seemed like an hour. And he made a small jump at me, and that jump wasn't like he first came. I hit him as hard as I could with my left thing right below the eye, and if you know an animal, a dog or a bear, you can take a 12-inch pencil and hit a dog on the nose and he'll cry. Well, the bear is the same way. And I hit the bear. He was in the air. And when I hit him with my left fist, and it seemed like he just hung in the air, but he went down, he never moved. The bear never moved. The only thing that fell was the head. The head fell into the moss. We had about four inches of snow up there. And I tried to get back. I said, well, I'm going to try to get back and see. I don't know if he's knocked out or if he's dead or what it was. And I got to the gun to shoot the bear, but that was an impossible thing. My right arm wouldn't come up. And now my left arm, this little finger is broken two right above the knuckle there and uh, the bear laid there and I had some dumb feeling. I says, I'm going to walk back. If I can walk, I'm going to kick that bear. And now that I thought later how dumb that was, but I did walk back and I looked at the bear and all I could said, thank you, Lord, for the help you gave. And I was bleeding really bad out of the arm and the leg, and the little finger was broken in the middle there. And 
I was very dizzy and thing. I laid down, and the bear laid down just about six feet from me. And I thought, well, that's it. They'll find us both together, I guess, if they follow my tracks. And then I said, probably I can get up. I went kind of away from it where I couldn't remember. Then it come back to me. And then I got up. I'd eat some snow. And I got up. And then uh, I said, I'm going to try to get out of here. And so I took some plastic and I wrapped it around my arm. I had some plastic uh, bags and garbage bag. I wrapped one around that. Then I wrapped one around my leg. And I thought I probably better take the gun with me with that blood. Probably the bear, another bear will smell me and I'll have another fight. And that was the toughest afternoon I've ever spent in my life. If you know alders now, I lived as a kid in Minnesota with, they called it red buckbrush. And we thought it was bad there, but these alders are much worse. And they'd snag into that plastic and try to pull it out and I'd wrap it up. And I remember two times laying down to die. And you do a lot of thinking when you're going to die. You think about your folks or your wife, one thing or another. And I'd eat some snow and my dizziness would get away. And I got up and then I come and I got next to a canyon and I knew there'd be a trail where there was a canyon. And I started down the trail, and here was a huge spruce tree across it. On one side, it went down to the canyon like 100 feet. The other side, the brush was so thick, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get under it. So my only thought was, can I get over it? Well, my hands weren't worth much of use, and I took my elbow and put it up on the log and I slid over the top, but I left the gun there. I says, I don't need the gun. And then I started thinking, it had been snowing all kind of a day, and am I going in the right direction? Well, one thing I've learned in Alaska, when I go into where there's mountains, I always turn around, I look backwards to see what's behind me on how the mountains shape or this and that. So I know if I ever got turned around, I could look back and see what direction I came. So all at once, the sky kind of opened up, and I looked across the strait between that and Fognac, and boy, I says, you know, I'm right on. And so I laid down again, and the dizziness was so bad, and then the dizziness, I just eat a pile of snow, and I got up again, and I getting down, I could hear water running, and water running because we'd left the boat just on the other side of a little creek when we come in that morning. Uh, we had traveled, well, we traveled about 10 miles to a new place, and uh, we were trying this new place to go in where the woods was much heavier because the deer hadn't winter killed as much. And so we started up the mountain, and that's what we were hunting that day. And I knew if I hit river, I'm going to be to the ocean for sure, and I'm going downhill, and I seen the mountain. So when I got down to the ocean, 
I just give out anymore. There was a flat rock there, and I laid on it, and I yelled, and our boat was right across the river, so two people yelled. The man I was hunting with, he had left where I was, and he was there, and another hunter was there, and what we do when it gets close to 4 o'clock, we shoot at the beach, and then wherever somebody's out, they answer, so we get organized that we're going to get there because it's dark about close to 5 o'clock. And so my boy answered. He was up above on the right. And they come running across, and I was really hurting. I'd left without my coat because I couldn't get my coat over my arm, but that guy took his coat off, and he didn't put my arms in, but he tightened it in my chest there. And I asked him if he would just take the gun and shoot me. I said, that pain is really bad. I just can't. Well, he says, if we are here in the morning, I'll shoot you. I remember that. And what happened with them starting to yell with my boy, he couldn't quite hear them, and they, they thought there's a bear between you and us, so he didn't want to come at first. And they kept yelling, so when he come, they had moved the boat around on my side and the wind had come up. And when he got out in the wind, he couldn't make that boat go forward enough at all. And I didn't ask him where he was going to go, but we knew just a short way, probably a mile up there or a mile and a half, there's a bay in and there's a German living there, him and his wife. Now, we had had the story told to us by a lot of fishermen these people were very bad. So we had never gone in to talk to him in eight years or so. Anyhow, he went back to that motor that had quit. He pulled one time and it started. <clears throat> Boy, we could go right along into them waves. So he come into that bay and there's smoke coming out of that cabin up there. And I'm laying in the bottom of the boat. And we got to shore and they yelled, well, there was three men there and a woman. They come out running and they said they had somebody hurt. Well, they tried to carry me and that hurt worse than anything in the world. Every place I had it, there was uh, a bear cut. And of course, you know, with a bear, it ain't like cutting with a knife. They got a curved claw and that pulls the meat out. So the meat is always hanging outside of your skin. So anyhow, I said, no, let me try it myself. And I got along, I never forget, I went along the west side of the house on the north side, and then they had a little teeny Arctic entry, and I went through there, and I walked across their kitchen. Their house wasn't all done yet, but there was plywood on the floor, and I laid down in their living room on the on the plywood floor there, and I'll tell you what the German did. He did two things, the most probably gracious man I've ever, ever met. <clears throat> he took his chainsaw and cut a hole in the cabin. Before he did that, he cut two studs out. Before he did that, he had the only radio <clears throat> that could call, and he called the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard had just taken off on maneuvers, and they said, we'll be there. We only got 40, 50 miles. <coughs> and so they swung around, and 
Tom there, he started working on my arm. And what I'd done in construction, I made everybody every year to take a one day of a first aid kit. And the older guys were good. A lot of the young guys, oh, we don't need that. But I always told them this. I said, you don't have to take that, but you don't have to work with us either. And so uh, Tom took with my arm and asked this lady what she had for first aid. Well, all she had was ace bandage. But Tom went putting his thumb in this meat of mine. The bone is laying there, and he pushed the meat in, and then he brought my arm up with that, and then he put a wrap of that on, and then he pushed some more. My boy didn't want to take, take anything in my leg. He just stood. I says, Carl, you got to help me. So Carl tore the woman's, uh, she had a big uh, apron, and he tore strips in it about eight inches, and he wrapped up that, pushed that meat. You could see the bone there, but he pushed it in, and he wrapped up that apron, and then he put another piece on. And it wasn't long before the helicopter was there, and they come through the hole in the wall there, and there was three of them there. And what they had done before that, this woman had two yellow, um, what am I thinking here? They were uh, uh, sleeping bags. And they put me in one, the boys did, and then they put me over it in another one. So they slid the stretcher in, and I was in that, and it was right away. My boy wanted to go with me, and I says, Carl, the law is we've got to skin that bear out. So he stayed, and going in wasn't bad. There was one man back with me. I started passing off, and he kept grabbing me. He said, no, you're not going no place. You're not going no place. And then I'd drift away, and he'd grab me. He said, uh, you're going to make it. And I said, what makes you think so? Well, you're on three prayer channels already. So very good going in. And there was an ambulance there, and they put me in the ambulance, and there was a lot of lights in there, and they put something in my nose and this and that and whatever they did, and they took me into a hospital. Now, this hospital is brand new, less than a year old, only a 23-bred hospital. And so this doctor it was a man that came from Chicago. He came out of Idaho, and he had signed up to spend two years at this hospital. And so he started working on me with the nurse, and I'd go off and I'd come back into it. I don't know if they give me more stuff or back, but that doctor was with me for 12 hours, and he sewed on me for approximately eight hours. And uh, then he'd leave a little while, and I remember either being in the sleep where you hear something or something, but I heard the doctor walk away. I hear two nurses come in, and the one nurse told the other one, uh, well, he's so old, he probably won't heal anyhow. So I never have forgot that. I don't know if it was when I was this way or not. But then a nurse come in, and she said, your wife and son-in-law is going to be down here in the morning. At Kodiak, 
Anchorage to Kodiak, they have a 6.30 flight in the morning. Every morning it flies down there at 6.30. So I can remember about 5.30 in the morning when the doctor leaves, I'm still in the operating room. It ain't like a big hospital, you know, what they do. But anyhow, uh, I was cold, so I said that, and they put a heat blanket over with me with hot air. And here my wife walked in, and I was laying there, and uh, so lots of great things happened in that town. The doctors came with four doctors come there, and they're going to minivac me into Anchorage or into Seattle. And I told them, I'm staying right here. No, we're the ones to decide. Well, I said, no, I'm the one to decide. What had happened in Anchorage, if you'd heard about staph infection, that's a dangerous thing, and we have them in our big hospital. With They had quit counting when I had 500 stitches from my hip down. And so uh, what chance would I have but not getting staph infection? No, I said, I'm doing real fine here. The nurses are here. Don't say nothing more. And my doctor was there and that had sold on me, and he says, you better uh, listen to him. My wife came in, and uh, the town is just a small town, but a great town. Uh, somebody gave her two different cars to drive, two different places to stay, and uh, so everything was just real good, and I'm happy there. I had one little bad call, had a good call that nobody could come in my room except my son-in-law and my wife. And this nurse come in, she says, you know that there's been an old lady waiting out there for an hour and a half, can she come in? I don't know who she is. I says, come in. And that was my seventh grade teacher when I was just seventh grade. And uh, we talked, it was great to see her. We had one little bad call. About two years before that, or three years before that, we were hunting, we had game wardens pull in, a little short guy come in, and he grabbed one of my hunters, go down to the beach with me. Then he came the next one, go down to the beach with me. So when I'm the last one, you come down to the beach. I said, no, I don't need to go to the beach. I can talk here. I said, we don't break any laws. What's your problem. I know somebody shot two elk and just took the hindquarters. That's where you need to be. He said, well, I did look at your meat, and you even got the liver and heart. I said, we don't waste any meat. But he, I wouldn't walk down there. And I told him after the game went left, I said, we're going to have one person in charge from now on. This idea of five of you walking down to it, because we are not breaking any laws. And so the first man, he come walking in, and we got high beds in the hospital, and I'm hurting. I can't even move hardly. Before he turned the corner, he said, you could have got away from that bear if you would have wanted to. And that just hit me so bad. I just couldn't stand him, and he said that about four times. You could have got away from him if you would have wanted to. My son-in-law is sitting there, he said, I'm going to tell you, game warden, if you don't get out of here, 
he's going to do the same thing to you he did the bear. Woof, he was gone. And later on, a few days, the other hunters came in and they'd gone up there, the bear, and they'd got a fresh snow there, so they had a little trouble finding my tracks, but it was very interesting when I talked to my boy. He said, I see you laid down two times before you got to the tree and there was a lot more blood where you laid and your gun was there against that tree stump and when we got back to the bear, there was two other bear there, but they run off and so one of them stayed with the gun and the other three skinned the, the bear out and took it. My boy took it down to the ocean so they had a good trip the next day for that, and the two that come in, they come up and visit me at the hospital. And my boy flew in because we had a business and he had concrete business, so he flew in and they, they took the ferry and went around. But everything was good at the hospital. I mean, them two sleeping bags were so full of... Uh, blood and everything, and she took him down to a laundry. You know, he said, I can get the blood off. That's no problem. And, of course, we wanted to get him back to the German people, or my boy did. He said, what kind of blood are they? Human? Oh, we can't touch human blood. So a nurse is sitting there. Let me take it at home. I've got a, a bath there. Let me just take it there, bathtub there, and let me do it. So she cleaned him up very nice, and... Them Germans got him back, and uh, the ones with the car, we knew those people. And so everything came. Then the meeting come again. You got to go into Anchorage at least. Why? Well, you got skin graft. I said, man, I'm, I'm a long ways away from skin graft. Well, yeah, but you need to be at the hospital there. I said, the same thing. I'm staying right here. If you kick me out of the hospital... I'll be there, but I'm so pleased. I've got no infection yet, and I don't know if I'm going to get this hospital is the greatest. Well, they growled and went out of there, but my own, my own doctor that sewed, he kind of just laughed and went out of there. So I only was in the hospital about a week or 10 days or something, and I told Shirley, I said, you know, we can make it at home. So then you know, the story was I was going to fly from there and go probably into the hospital in Anchorage. And so they were very good. There was a long flight of stairs. They put me in the chair and just picked up the chair. The only bad thing, uh, it wasn't bad really, but the, the attendant there said, well, you know, you got a special one in the front seat. He's the one that killed the bear with the knife. So all the way to Anchorage, everybody come back, just ask this question, that question, that question. And so when I got to Anchorage, somebody thought, well, you're going to call an ambulance? No, I said, my, uh, my uh, son-in-law, he's got a, a big uh, Cadillac there or so. It was just, hey, I want to stop at home. So when I got home, I just went straight to the bedroom. What are you gonna do here? You've gotta get there to get in that jacuzzi. And uh, I'd been in the jacuzzi, but it wasn't big enough for me in Kodiak, it was just for babies. 
So there at home, I've got a big seven-footer there. I don't need to go to the hospital. I'd ask the doctor, what do you do? Well, if you take Tide soap, it's as good a detergent you could get. You get right in the hottest water you can with that soap and just get in there and do it at least twice a day. And so I crawled in that bed. I was pretty well tired. I really ached out. And so the little story about that, jacuzzi, they just about had to carry me to get me in the jacuzzi. I couldn't win. And then you got to watch out. A woman's temperature is a lot better high than it was. That water was awful high, so hot. So I finally got in it. And my wife don't do anything. She, he just said, put a small cup. Well, she must have put two or three cupfuls in that thing. And I'm laying in there pretty soon. The foam is covering my face, so I push that. Pretty soon, the foam is up to the top of the tub. And then they seen it, and my wife and son-in-law, he's running there, one of them dumping it in the toilet, the other, I got two sinks, and they were running back and forth getting that foam. It got over the tub and went down the floor and around the corner heading for the for the stairway. And so they fought that thing to it. Finally, they said, turn all the cold water on you can. Let's see if we can kill it. So that was my experiment. But uh, the doctor had come into town two times while I was home there and uh, stayed with us overnight and really did a great job. I never got one piece of infection in all the cuts that I had. So I was very good. And I told my wife, it's about the middle of uh, November. I said, we're going to go to the Phoenix Open football game the first of January. She says, you've got a long ways to go. So the only thing I got in the hospital before I left, I wanted to get skin graft on my arm and my leg or the different places. And uh, I went in and they were all ready for me and they skin graft nothing, no problem. And I was down to Arizona the 1st of January and went to the football game and never had no problem with anybody. Uh, everybody treated us really so wonderful in that town. And then we got a call uh, from the Senate there. They called us, uh, Juno, we're sending you uh, some little gift and we, you, we want you to get the hide. It comes for sale in for rendezvous in the middle of February. Well, we'd come back from Arizona and... Uh, we bought the hide. Somebody was bidding against me, but one of the guys that was with us on a hunt, they went, hey, don't bid on that guy. That's the bear he killed with the knife. So that's how I got the the knife very reasonable. I mean, and I got the knife and, uh, and the hide. So the knife has been with me. Buck knife has been a friend, and they offered me $10,000 for the knife, but I still have it. One year later, I went back to Kodiak and never had no bear attack there. And uh, we still hunt. I'm a little bit, probably a little more scared of bear. Probably I don't call a deer call unless I'm on top where I can see all the way around or something. 
but it was a great experience with a great hospital, a great doctor, and I, I'm very well and things, and all I can say is a lot of thank you for a lot of people. If you're thinking, great, now I just heard a story about bear attacks and I'm going to be planning a hunt in bear country. My intent wasn't to scare you away. And, you know, I guess I would say in some ways bear attacks are rare, but also they're rare in the sense that if you're never in bear country, then you don't have to worry about it. But as hunters, we are in their zones, we're in their bedrooms, we're in their habitats, and we're doing things that are generally not, uh, I would say, the best things to do for avoiding bears, right? We're sneaking around, we're being quiet, we're, we're backpack camping so we've got food. Sometimes we're uh, cleaning an animal. We're doing all these things that might end up attracting a bear, surprising a bear, doing something that could incite attack. So I think it's definitely something that when you plan a a hunt in any kind of bear country, whether it be Alaska, Canada, um, around the Yellowstone region of Western United States, uh, you have to really think about these things. And even outside of that, I mean, if you're deer hunting, backpack hunting in California, there's high black bear concentrations, even in the East Coast, pretty much throughout the US, high black bear concentrations, a lot of places in Canada as well. So I think it's something that it's really good to just think about and it's something to be prepared for, whether it's it's one of those things like you don't want to always focus on the negative part of it, but you want to be prepared and, and be thinking about it. Because as somebody that's grown up hunting and been around bears for a very long time, I think that there's a point where a lot of us have gotten lax about it. And in many ways, it wasn't something we had to worry about in the past because the densities of bears made them very rare encounters. But the, the populations are definitely increasing. You know, in the lower 48, grizzly bears, I think maybe like like 1975, um, there's probably only about 700 to 800 bears in the U.S. And today that's over 2,000 bears. And the area that they're in isn't huge, but it is definitely expanding. So when you think about that many animals in a small area, and these are the areas where a lot of Western big game hunts are happening, then you would think that that chance for conflict is going to increase. Um, one of the things that I, I sat down uh, this last week and just kind of dove in and decided to kind of make my own statistics on some of these bear encounters and bear attacks. And when you're looking at fatal bear attacks, it's so from 2010 to 2020, there was 17 fatal grizzly attacks and actually 10 fatal black bear attacks in North America. And then after 2020, so 2020 to 2022, there's been, or now this portion, four months into 2022, there's been seven fatal grizzly attacks, five fatal black bear attacks. So that was well, last year, there was definitely a trend in the rise of bear attacks. And there's probably a lot of reasons behind that with COVID. There's more people getting out in these areas. There's more people moving to these areas and there's more bears. So there's more bears, there's more people in bear country there's an increase in attacks, whether it's something that'll keep continuing on or it was a one-year kind of uh, what happened this year. Also, um, there's probably other things like, uh, I would say, you mix in some other factors like some droughts in some areas where there's less food or even uh, weaker salmon runs where there's less food and you, maybe you're going to have more encounters or more fatal attacks. So I think that, um, you know, looking at those, it's pretty interesting to see. So in, since 2010, in North America, there's been 24 fatal grizzly attacks and 15 fatal black bear attacks. 
now I, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper in it. So attacks on hunters, I'd just say somebody doing something while hunting. So the type of activity, in my opinion, does matter as well. So attacks on hunters of those 24 grizzly fatal attacks, six of them were hunters doing something, which is, is quite a few. Now, nine of those were people like the act of like hiking or moving through country. A lot of it like hikers, maybe it could be in a national park, could be whatever, but essentially it's saying like most of those attacks, the majority of the attacks that you could pinpoint for something was surprising a bear. And then four attacks uh, happened at a campsite. This is grizzlies. Now with black bears, there was no, no attacks essentially on hunters. Um, now this isn't accounting for all the attacks because there's miscellaneous things. Uh, black bears, it tends to be a lot more encounters in urban settings, like behind people's cabins, behind people's houses. Uh, three attacks that I saw, you know, just digging through different things, campsites, and then four, you know, surprising an animal or some kind of predatory attack. But for the most part, um, a lot of the black bear attacks were, uh, not all of them, but a majority of them were on, you know, maybe older people um, around a homestead or on private property. So and dealing with bears around food, something bears had been habituated to people and then some form of attack. The grizzly attacks, that did happen as well. And, but not necessarily as much. More of them were out, um, you know, in doing some kind of recreating and then those attacks happened. So, you know, I, I was doing, like digging in outside of that. I found a couple different statistics that were talking about, you know, the types of bear attacks that happen. I think understanding like how these conflicts happen helps better create, in my mind, what I would consider a risk factor. So the risk factor is kind of asking where you're hunting, how you're hunting and how you're camping because it's going to be able to break down. Okay. What are, I don't even know if I'd call it like, what are the odds, but kind of saying like, am I doing something that might be, that might create a bear conflict or am I doing something that might help me avoid a bear conflict? And I can kind of plan in my hunt plan accordingly. I did run into a couple interesting statistics that uh, found that in a lot of conflicts, there was, it was like a family bear group. So a sow with cubs, it happened to be in quite a few, uh, I think it was like th- over 30%. But then there was quite a few grizzly encounters that were um, single grizzlies involved. So, and those would probably be the ones that are, hunters are probably going to be, I don't know, most encountering where it's uh, a single male grizzly over some kind of food source. Now, in a lot of conflicts, I mean, I guess pretty much they can happen any time of year, but the majority of the time is in the spring and fall season. And then most of the bear attacks have happened during the daytime. So while people are moving around. So in, in some ways, surprising animals. Now in, when it comes to like bad confrontations, groups of like two or more people were less likely to have a death or an attack. So people that are by themselves, people that are traveling alone, separated from a group, hunting alone, are actually more likely to have negative confrontations with bears. There's probably a lot of reasons behind that. Um, maybe one of them being, you know, making less noise. Another could just be that when something does happen, there's not another person to kind of scare the bear off. The bear feels like, oh, this is a threat that I can handle and take face on. So these are all just things that I think about when I'm creating this risk factor. For me personally, I do a lot of solo hunting. I'm by myself a lot. So I factor that in. I factor that into to the way that I hunt, the things that I think about, the things that I take with me, um, because that's all something that you're going to have to think about because 
statistically, if you're by yourself in these bear prone areas, yeah, maybe it's not likely that you're going to get attacked by a bear, but also you're more likely than other people doing some of the similar things. So I like to kind of think about bear country and creating these risk factors. It's not something that I, I don't avoid bear country. I enjoy the experience in bear country. And I, I really think that it is one of the most wild experiences that you can have in your life is to be hunting in bear country. You know, it's a very, I talk about it's the live wild podcast, right? And I feel like when you're in bear country, there's a certain amount of respect that you have to have for the animals and the country. And it really kind of brings out this alertness and this, this sense of like, I feel very small in this, this area because um, I'm not the largest predator here. And so being in bear country and hunting in bear country is a great experience, but it also needs to have some kind of precaution. And that, I think that goes with anything, no matter what you're doing, you have to like look at the risks and then how do I kind of prevent those risks? And I think the first way, you know, a lot of people want to talk about bear defense, but I think the first thing to think about is just bear avoidance. And I've talked about this before, but I think it's something that definitely needs to get brought up because there's more people in bear country. It's, it's just more people are moving to places where bears are, more bears are there and bears are moving to more places where people are. There's everybody's spreading out. And because of that, there's going to constantly be more conflicts every year in my opinion. But there are a few things that people can do to kind of be bear aware, be bear prepared. I think, uh, well, first of all, this is primarily talking to hunters. So let's, let's look at why hunters might be primary targets for bears. Well, there's a couple of things. One is we're doing things that don't allow us to let bears know that we're there. We're walking with the wind in our face. We're being quiet. We're generally camouflaged, maybe even some kind of like masking our scent with something. I don't know, whatever. And we're also around. So a lot of these bear attacks are happening by surprising bears. So it's like you're moving through the, the woods, you're being quiet, you're doing all these things. Well, that's an easy way to surprise a sow with cubs, a bear on a kill, uh, a lot of things that are probably not great. Another thing is we're messing around with food sources. We're, you know, you're successful, you're around a carcass, you're at something that a bear wants. And if you're where a bear wants to be, then that's a higher likelihood of encountering a bear. Another thing is we're camping, essentially living out of a backpack in bear country. So these are all kind of things that you're like, wow, this doesn't sound super promising, but in my opinion, there's things that make hunting a safer activity than maybe somebody riding a bike is we're in many ways more prepared and we have a skill set to defend ourselves or have the tools necessary. So most people that are hunting around have some something to defend themselves with naturally. Now, it might not be the best option, but you do have something, um, whether it be a rifle, a pistol, something like that. Many hunters go into these situations more prepared, I would say, than people that are just recreating, taking photos, doing other things that they don't even think about it. Whereas hunters, you're like, I am, because you're in bear country and you're kind of in some ways doing things that are not safe, you're actually more safe because you're being more prepared. So I think that if you think of it like that, you know, when you look at it, okay, hunters might be a prime target for bears and in the way, but in many ways, aren't the ones that are getting attacked is often because it's something that you're, you're constantly thinking about more than maybe somebody that's just on a trail hike or doesn't have as much experience in the outdoors. So in many ways, we're actually, um, hunters are fairly, uh, I would say like prepared for bears, but it's also good to think about ways to be more prepared. So I like to think about looking at those likely points where I'm going to encounter a bear and then entering those situations with the right mindset. So 
let's pick like the highest risk factor. Let's say I'm by myself. I'm in dense bear country, maybe greater Yellowstone area around outside of the park boundary in Montana or Wyoming, right? And I've killed an elk and I'm bow hunting and I'm packing out an elk. So uh, as I pack the elk, I'm going to be encountering a carcass. I'm, I've got a pack that's heavy and whatever. I'm probably going to my camp where I'm going to need to sleep and I'm by myself. So if I think about that, okay, well, where are these likely points? Well, a likely point that I'm going to encounter a bear statistically is hiking around it's it's bumping into and surprising a bear okay so if i'm done with my hunting portion i'm not i necessarily don't have to be quiet i can make noises i'm moving through i can talk to myself i can do whatever i can also um surprising bears is a way to get attacked by a bear so i can choose routes that are not super thick maybe when i was moving through and trying to get the elk um, I, I was going through some thicker country, but now I can say, okay, where's, where's a route that I've got a little bit more visibility? Do I have to walk through this uh, creek bottom of alders or can I get up on this ridge where I've got a little bit more visibility um, and the wind might be you know, favorable to letting animals know where I'm at? Another likely pinch point would be at the kill site. So every time I approach the kill site, I'm thinking this is a good place that narrows down where a bear might be. So as I approach the kill site, I'm going to be looking. I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be, you know, have some kind of bear defense ready. And then the same thing back at camp. When I get back to camp, I'm not going to have things in my camp where I'm sleeping. I'm going to hang the meat, um, let's say, you know, downwind of my camp. So my scent's blowing toward the meat and then the meat's, you know, down below me. So it's not drawing bears past my camp. It's going to be at a distance in the open where I can see uh, you know, a far enough way, probably a hundred yards, I'd say at least. Um, and then I'm not going to have other food items or other attractants in my camp where I'm sleeping. So by focusing in on those likely points of running into a bear, I can kind of minimize my negative encounters because not every encounter with a brown bear, grizzly bear is a bad encounter. I'd say over the course of my life, the majority of encounters I've had with these type of bears is them running away. Now, I've had a handful of encounters where they don't run away with black bears and brown bears. Um, and in those situations, you know, there's, there's probably something that I could have done better, in, to be in all honesty. And then there was those situations where it just happened so fast, you know, with, whether it's a bluff charge or a full charge or whatever, that it was just a bad situation and you just hope that you're prepared. So the reality of it is the worst place for bear attack is in bear country. You know, it's going to be those places, probably um, the greater Yellowstone region, the, you know, Northwest Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, uh, places around the park on the outside boundaries of the park. Those are going to be the primary places. Now, a lot of Canada has a lot of bears, both black bear and brown bear, and a, a large portion of these attacks happen in Canada. And then obviously Alaska. Um, there's a lot of places in Alaska with a lot of bears. Now, Food is a huge factor when it comes to bears being incited to attack, whether it's they're looking for food or you're interfering with food. Food is a huge factor. And I think that thinking about how the the time of year and the, the place that you're at plays a big factor in this as well. Like think about this, if there's a drought, like we experienced in a lot of places out West, well, what's that do? That actually decreases the amount of food the bears have right? So in the springtime, a lot, they're eating a lot of grasses and other things, but those grasses are, are creating fall crops or that 
water is creating fall crops as well, like berries, um, you know, huckleberries, other kind of berries that the bears gorge on when they're hyperphaging in the fall. So in the fall, they're, they're storing up all this energy to go into hibernation. So if you notice it's like, hey, it's a very dry year, whether it's springtime, fall time, whatever, you're probably going to see less food supplies, whether it's, uh, we can talk about this for brown bears and we can definitely talk about this for black bears. I would say, you know, you, you think about, you go back to the statistic of brown, 24 fatal grizzly attacks in the last, what, I don't know, 11 and a half years. Um, and then you look at fatal black bear attacks and it's only 10 less. It's still a lot of them. And I would say that most of those black bear attacks are some form of food, probably driving bears toward places where there's going to be more food when food sources, wild natural food sources become in rare supply. So if you think of that drought factor, right? They're, they're going in, they're, there's, there's fewer things to eat. Well, what else is there to eat outside of those um, really nutrient berries, maybe it's a mast crop of like acorns if you're in oak brush type country in the Southwest or whatever. What, okay, if there's a, a missing food supply, maybe it's a, a bad salmon run and you're on a, in a coastal area and that's their main food supply. Well, what's another food supply now? Now, large game, other game animals is a, is a bigger food supply. So your risk factor goes up when you have conditions that decrease a food supply. So you have to think about this when you go into any area and say, okay, my probability of a, a negative encounter is gonna be increased because there's less food and now I have some kind of food source. I mean, you aren't the food source, right? But you have some kind of food source. So thinking about how that area is kind of changes my alertness and the way that I do things as well. Um, not that I don't always try to take what I'd consider like best practices in bear country, but uh, these these things are really important to think about when you're going into an area and saying, okay, well, where are the, and maybe you, there's less food supply, but you run into areas that do have a higher food source. So if you think about it, right, there's drought and maybe the mountains are dried up, but the valleys where the lower areas where people are maybe camping, where if you're doing day hunts and you've got a camp set up, it's going to drive more, you're going to have more bear encounters in those areas on those times when there's less food supply everywhere else. So that increases bear interactions and that increases potential negative interactions as well. Just because you're camping out of your truck or other things doesn't mean that um, you, you're essentially out of, I'd say the striking zone of where a bear would be. A lot of the places that uh, if you look through actually fatal attacks and even just you know bad encounters, a lot of places are the places that people are least likely to assume cabins, campsites, even like campsites that have a lot of people in them that are like uh, an established campsite. And even in people's homes, a lot of these things happen on private property. Um, just as last year, I had a, uh, a mountain lion actually kill a, a deer right behind one of my cabins. And then, you know, so I set up a trail camera hoping to catch the mountain lion and see what happened, you know, just set it there and, and, a bear had come in and claimed the carcass after the lion and killed it, which actually happens a lot. You know, lions get pushed off kills quite often. I've seen it happen with wolves. I've seen it, or lions get pushed off from wolves. I've seen it happen with bears. Um, even two years ago, I, same deal, kind of put a trail camera on. I had a lion, wolves, and bears all coming to the same kill. So a bear had claimed this carcass. I probably should have drugged the carcass away from the cabin, but then that bear became very... Um, it was just a black bear, fortunately, but became very protective of this this food source. He mock charged me a couple times in the dark, which was not great. And then he started looking around, you know, the cabin and other things for 
another food source. I actually tried to use kind of on the porch he moved off i tried to open the door to scare him and he charged the door and i had you know my family inside and everything i had a gun but i wasn't gonna discharge i mean it's three feet from the porch but i was <laughs> just shut the door um you know but it, it was kind of a scary situation for everybody there we we've got to walk from cabin to cabin in the dark and you've got to do all these things and, and you see like okay there's a food source here so we, so we moved um the carcass the the dead deer and uh put it away and the bear finished eating it but it was no longer right in where our house was and everything like that so um but it does happen it does happen around homes and other things that you think oh, i'm real safe here so it's just something to think about whether you're when you're going into an area and you're saying like oh i'm in this campground that's just outside of town or off this forest service road and it's very established that doesn't mean that you have to you can drop your guard and not just be bear aware not keep a clean camp not keep things that keep the bears deterred away when it comes to preventing bears from being attracted to you you know food's a big thing and thinking about food like how you keep your food is is a big thing as well now there's so there's canisters i don't really carry bear canisters unless it's like mandatory in that particular area so most of the time when we're hunting we aren't in those campgrounds like the trouble is is when you get a campground where bears have been fed and then they're habituated to getting food there um, if a bear resistant canister container is required then of course i'll take it uh, if it's not there are these um, they call them bear bags like it's a i don't know it's like a supposedly a tear proof bear bag I haven't used those yet, but I think I'll definitely look into them in the future. One thing that I generally do when I'm in Alaska or other places, I use like a dry bag and then I store it away from my tent and camp. I keep everything that might be considered food in with the food and not in the tent with me. I don't keep my toothpaste in the tent. I don't keep, um, you know, any kind of food items in the tent. And I definitely always, when I'm in the tent, keep, you know, some kind of bare defense nearby, easy to, easy to get to. Um, attacks don't really happen that often uh, when you're sleeping, but they do happen. And most of the time it was because there's some kind of food in, in and around the tent or cooking or whatever. When I'm in bear country, oftentimes I'm just using, you know, I, I use this peak refuel a lot, like something that doesn't take a lot of smell. Like I can eat the whole thing. It's portion, the portion sizes are good. It's not like I'm grilling bacon out there. You know, I'm just, I move away from my tent, make my meal, eat my meal, keep my trash with the rest of my food and I don't have to necessarily worry about it. I haven't had any, um, you know, negative of bear encounters in my camp, uh, knock on wood of all the places that I've hunted. Uh, and, and it's probably because I just, you know, follow that. Now, if I can't, sometimes when I'm in, I don't know, places like California where there's a high population of black bears, I'll hang my food. And most of the time I hang my food, it's more just to keep it away from other things. I've had like marmots chew through bags. I've had, you know, other animals get into it. Um, if you're, if you're going to hang your food, you got to go at least 10 feet above the ground. They say four feet away from the trunk. If I'm in grizzly country, I, I, I don't necessarily think about out as much as high. Um, from black bear country, you definitely want it out a little bit. I'll use like a rock or water bottle sometimes and then throw my paracord over the limb and uh, tie it up. I generally, you know, tie it to another tree out of the way where if they're climbing, they're going to rip the cordage as well. Um, and, that, and that's just something, you know, it can be actually a lot of people have difficulty doing it. I don't know, you get, you get used to doing it if you're good at it it works really well some people say it doesn't work but i think it's just because people don't do it right and i have had um things that i thought were hanging enough 
meat and other things get taken by bears. Um, but sometimes it's not always possible to hang stuff. So just keeping things away from your tent and, you know, when you go to your food sources and other things, like I say, it's moving between things. That's what you're surprising a bear. So when you're doing those activities that you're going to surprise a bear, you know, being aware, paying attention, you know, maybe not doing it in the dark or other things like get your food early for the day and, and do whatever you have to do. So you aren't moving to where a bear might be in the dark and then making noise and, and hopefully scaring a bear off. So you don't have those negative encounters and surprise a bear. When it comes to bear defense, a question is always like, well, what should I carry? And the answer is not just as simple as like, you should carry this because there's so many factors that come into play. I mean, factors of who you are, what you're comfortable with, what you're hunting with, where you're hunting. I mean, if you live in Canada, you probably aren't going to have access to a pistol as a, as a choice of bear defense, right? So your options would be bear spray, shotgun, a rifle and it's like well carrying a shotgun if you're in backcountry hunt and you're packing in like is not a super convenient thing so you probably say well bear spray in a rifle now if you're bow hunting then you might have something and you're bow hunting in let's say montana or wyoming well you have different options um maybe you're going to take a pistol or maybe you're going to have bear spray and a pistol uh now if you're maybe you're on a rifle hunt in that same you know montana wyoming country it's like well i have a rifle but that might not be fast enough or whatever if i encounter a bear in close brush or to get a shot off not enough rounds so maybe it's like you've got bear spray and your rifle so every what you've got in or maybe you're backpacking maybe you're day hunting what you have kind of depends on the situation how you're hunting where you're hunting and and also the likelihood of running into a bear sometimes when you're hunting on fringe bear country where it's very unlikely you're even going to see a bear, right? You might not want to be carrying something super heavy, but you want something peace of mind knowing that if something did happen, you wouldn't feel at least completely <laughs> just like shit out of luck. So I'd say right now, you know, if, when it comes to any kind of bear defense, probably the best options are some kind of pistol if you can and, and or bear spray. I've carried both and, you know, I, I've done both i'd say out of the pistol category 44 mag revolver and 10 millimeter semi-auto seem to be the most uh popular right now i would also say that within those you know you'd always want a really hard cast bullet like a really heavy hard cast bullet um you know you can even if you're in like black bear country i've even gone as like carrying a nine millimeter and then just used um higher pressure ammunition like was it p plus or whatever so there's a lot of there's a lot of options. And when it comes to the defense side, um, I think that you could pretty much like dissect this so many ways and it's really fun to do. And I love talking about it, but it, that would be essentially an entirely different podcast. You know, when I, I think like what's good for one person maybe also isn't good for another. So for me, I, I like, I have a pistol, but I don't think that I would, when, when we go into bear country, I don't give my wife a pistol, not because I don't trust my wife, the pistol, but she just doesn't practice with a pistol. I, she's not comfortable with the pistol but she needs something. So the bear spray is an extremely, I would say that's the most effective thing for her because it's her best option, right? Um, so we kind of have to look at that and be realistic of what is your best option for defense and then having it ready, knowing how to use it and being able to get it out and carrying it quickly. And I think later on this year, I'm going to do a full thing just on bear defense and options of carrying things. Cause I really want to put together kind of an, not just for me, just, I think it'd be interesting because there's so many different options out there, but just an extensive test, try a lot of different guns. Cause there's some guns that I don't have a few that I'm, I'm trying to gather right now. 
some popular options. And then just there's some things out there that are new and a couple different calibers that I think are pretty interesting that I'd like to mess around with. So later on this year, I'm going to give you kind of a full rundown of some bear defense stuff, maybe some new stuff that's coming out or just some things to look at. Because, you know, if it's something you're going to have, I think there's like pluses and minuses to everything. So I really want to take a little bit of time later on this year and kind of break that down. So I'm looking forward to that that particular podcast. But for right now, I think the thing is thinking about adding into your plan, bear avoidance and avoiding those particular things that have a higher likelihood of encountering a bear, right? Now, those things can't always happen, but you know, you, you could be skinning a deer, your gun could be a few feet away and you can get attacked by a bear like Gene. Now he just used what was in his hands, which happened to be a knife. But um, we're, we're hoping that we don't have to have those kind of encounters. So they do happen, they can happen, but it's also something to think about, plan about and not be super lax about. In the past, I've gotten lax about it, especially in that fringe habitat. But I've been now seeing bears in places that they really used to not be and that's happening everywhere. And so I think that for me, it's something that I've been kind of renewing my thoughts on is, you know, being more diligent in bear country. I hope you guys all enjoyed the podcast today. It's one of those, it's one of those things I think that just needs to be brought up because as hunters, we are in bear country and we are encountering bears and it's just something to think about and understand I don't know what it is about bear attack stories. I think it's just one of those things. It's like that true adventure, that that living wild spirit. The thing is like you're in dangerous country doing dangerous things and, and stuff like that happens. Now, of course, it's not to scare people off because for every bear attack getting mauled story that there is, there's like thousands of days when you're in bear country and nothing like that happens, right? Those are the days that we're, we're looking for, but... Um, I don't know. There's just something fascinating about hearing those kind of survival stories. So I hope you enjoyed that story. I know this podcast was a little bit longer than normal, um, but I, I think that it's something that was it was good to talk about and uh, thoroughly entertaining. I, I definitely enjoyed re-listening to and reliving that story uh, that he told. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun for me. If you guys have questions, the call in Q and A is going to be going down. So today is April twenty first. And so for those of you that listen to this podcast first thing in the morning, you're going to have the the opportunity to call in. So what happens, I'm going to just kind of explain the way that the call-in works. Uh, You can go to my social media, go to Instagram, and it'll have all the call-in information so you can figure it out. I'm going to be doing it at 10 a.m. Pacific time today. So if you happen to be listening to this first thing, you can plan that, you can call in. There's a certain amount of spots on the call in. So you'll call in and you'll hear it'll either let you into a waiting room or you'll just get a busy signal until somebody's kicked out. So we'll be doing it for about 45 minutes to an hour. Um, so call in, make sure you're there. The line's open. Uh, when they're open, then you can call in. And then, you know, and then once you're in that waiting area, though, you can actually hear the podcast. So it's not actually broadcast live but then i take that recording and we'll replay that recording for everyone else but if you're in the call you can kind of hear everybody else's questions so if you've got good questions feel free to ask them you know there's there's uh, hunt planning stuff coming up there's tag draws coming up maybe you just got some tips and tactics things i really enjoy talking to you guys that was a lot of fun doing that so we're gonna we're gonna make it a thing Uh, so if you if you're listening first thing in the morning give us a call I'm excited to talk to you and hopefully answer a few questions, whether it's a, you know, whatever you can ask, whatever, and we'll see, we'll see where the topics tend to lead us. So I appreciate you guys for that. 
Also, I know with when it comes to like hunt planning and stuff like that, I've been getting a lot of questions, you know, people wanting, I kind of asked a while ago whether people wanted uh, tips and tactics on like hunt tactics or planning things and it was kind of split. Um, I, I use the Go Hunt Insider uh, for a lot of my like hunt planning stuff for statistics and other things and they've also got map stuff. I kind of, I worked out a deal with them. So if you guys want, if you do the Insider membership, you can get $50 in-store credit, but that's for the Insider membership. So I've done it before and people are like, try to use it in the store, but it's, if you get the Insider membership, you get $50 in their store. You just use my name, Remy. Um, and then what I do is once a quarter, I go in there, it's kind of a behind the scenes thing I like to do. Everybody that uses my code, I go in and just do like a drawing and then contact the, the person. And I do like about an hour, like private Zoom meeting of like just around hunt planning. So I can help you plan out your hunt. Maybe you're looking for a particular hunt. Maybe it's later in the season. We can go over the go hunt maps and, and figure out e-scouting and stuff like that. So if you've got a hunt coming up or you just like want to know a little bit about hunt planning, I do those about once a quarter. If you've used my code in the past, you're already, I do it, everybody that's ever used my code ever. Um, I just do that. I kind of, I don't really advertise it a lot, but I just think it's cool. I've, I've talked to a lot of guys and um, it's just been a lot of fun doing that. So I'm going to be drawing that. It's coming up. I probably, I guess a quarter really would have been the beginning of this month, but I'm doing it at the end of this month. So you've got a little bit of time to do that. If, you, if you're interested in the Go Hunt membership, um, you can put my name in there. And then out of those people that use that, I do that and draw it and hopefully to you if you got some hunt questions or whatever for that kind of more one-on-one -on -one. go over hunt planning and like e-scouting whatever so I do that just just thought I'd throw that out there if anybody's interested and I think you know the lesson learned the moral of today's story if a bear tries to kill you stab it in the face we'll catch y'all later <laughs>